Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. This episode features a sermon preached by Will Messenger entitled, What Does Calling Mean If You Hate Your Job? Will Messenger is the executive editor of the Theology of Work project, which exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject, and visit us at our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Here's Will Messenger. Hey, I really am glad to be that Steve asked me to talk about calling because I've been studying calling for about the last 15 years in the way Steve mentioned, and most recently at this organization called Theology of Work Project. And um, if, you, you, if you see on the screen, that's our, our website. And I just want to thank my colleagues from the project for helping me think, especially about calling. And if you happen to go to our website at www.theologyofwork.com, Org, this is what you'd see, and on the very front page, we have a whole an article about calling, and a lot of what I'm talking about today comes from there. Uh, that was a commercial, but everything is free, so I don't feel too bad about, about the commercial. Anyway, I talk about calling, you know, all the time, uh, so I thought this is going to be a piece of cake, except that I made a promise a couple months ago that I realized I was going to have to fulfill, and that was to my friend Kay. And Kay said to me, oh, I'm so tired of hearing all about calling, and God leads you to this wonderful job, and you know, everything fits perfectly, and you, know, you just have this fantastic experience at work, because uh, that's not what happens to me, she said. She, Kay said, I've got a job that I don't like, uh, but I, I can't quit because I need the money. So, you know, if you ever get to preach at our church, I want you to preach about if you don't like your job. And I thought, I'm never going to, you know, no one's ever going to ask me to preach. So I, so I said, sure, okay, whatever you want, I'll preach about that. And, and then Steve called. So now I'm stuck trying to pe- preach about what if you don't like your job. Uh, so that's the twist. Here goes, and let's see if it works. Uh, by the way, Kay, Kay gave me permission to tell you this. Uh, and she was at the first service, and she didn't hit me very hard afterwards. So I think it's all okay, but... Kay's boss, if you're listening, this is not the Kay who works for you. This is a different, this is a different Kay. Yeah, she's not the one who hates her job. Fortunately, I'm very experienced in jobs that I hated. In fact, I hated my first job. It was the summer I turned 15, and I got a job cutting the grass at my church in a little town in southern Delaware. And it seemed like we had acres of land, like it took me four or five hours to cut the grass. And it's always hot and sticky, humid in Delaware in the summer. So, you know, I'm drenched in sweat, dirty and tired and aching and sore. But the worst part was I had to cut the grass with a motorized, real lawnmower. And so that thing would just, like this hurricane of grass clippings, would just come up for five hours straight. So by the end, all these grass clippings are stuck to the sweat on my body. And... You know, I feel like I've just crawled through an attic full of insulation and my eyes are streaming like Niagara Falls. And what I didn't realize then is I'm allergic to grass. <laughs> right? I, I thought everybody had that reaction to grass. So I thought I just got to, you know, suck it up like a man and, you know, get to work. Plus, that was the best paying job I could get being 15 with no experience and no skills. And, you know... It takes a lot of money, you know, for Cokes and John Denver albums, so I had to keep the the job. 
So my situation then was a lot like Kay's now. I hated my job, but I couldn't quit because I needed the money. And that's true of a lot of people. According to a Gallup poll in August of 2012, less than half of U.S. workers are completely satisfied with their jobs. Federal workers' job satisfaction reached an all-time low in December of 2013, last month. And in 2013, Gallup reported that just 30% of Americans feel engaged and inspired at work. So how does God help us with this problem? After working through the entire Bible from the point of view of work for the last few years, uh, my colleagues and I have found three ways that God calls or guides people in their work. Now, there are a few people in the Bible that God calls, like, specifically, like, uh, um, like Moses in the burning bush, where, you know, God calls out of a burning bush, Moses, get my people out of Israel, I mean, out of Egypt. There are maybe a hundred people who get called that way. I'm talking about everybody else. And everybody else um, that gets called or led to work in the, by, by God in the Bible seems to be one of three ways. So the first one is number one on your bulletin, and that is use your gifts, skills, talents, and abilities. We all have different mixes of gifts, skills, talents, and abilities, and the mix God gives you is a clue to the calling or guidance God has for your work. And the Bible names some things, that, uh, some gifts that God gives. For instance, this is the first scripture in your program. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. So there's five or six gifts or skills or talents like teaching or generosity or diligence. Those are just a few examples of God's gifts of skill, talent, and ability that are mentioned in the Bible. The, the point is that what, what you're good at is a way of discerning God's calling. Whatever God wants you to do, He probably will give you the gifts and abilities to do it. So going back to my lawn mowing job, obviously I did not have the gift of not being allergic to grass. I also thought, it, I thought my gifts were more intellectual and less physical. Like, honestly, I thought this job was kind of beneath me. Uh, so I could go on and on about why I didn't think the job of lawn mowing was God's calling for me. But let's move on to my friend Kay. Maybe the reason Kay hates her job is that it's not a good match for her gifts and skills and abilities. So I called and asked her. No, she said, my job is a great match for my skills. I'm trained as an architect and I have experience in construction management, so it's good preparation for this job. And the feedback I get from my colleagues is that I'm doing a good job. So a poor fit between her gifts and skills uh, and her job is not the reason Kay hates her job. And I'm kind of glad that's not the reason, actually, because I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about your gifts and skills. You probably know your gifts and skills pretty well, because I think we live in the most gift-analyzed generation in human history. We have the Myers-Briggs, the Wexler, the Stanford Binet, the MMPI, Strong's Aptitude Test, SAT, PSAT, LSAT, GMAT, MedCAT, and of course the MCAS. And 
all this gift analysis can lead to a kind of self-absorption and work paralysis. I think it's easy to pick up the message that no one in the world is quite like you, which is true, that's true. And that means there's one job that only you can do, which is rubbish. Any job that you or I can do, there's probably tons of people in the world who can do it. So the idea that there's this one job waiting for you, it's false, I think. Plus, it's a horrible burden. You know, if you have to spend your, your life searching for the one true job, and you can't be satisfied with the job that you're good at or that you enjoy or that you're gifted at, you know, what a restless way to live life. It reminds me, uh, Dave Smeltzer used to talk about he had sensed this spirit of grim drivenness in this area, and maybe this is part of it, the, the sense that we can't be satisfied till we find the one true job. All right, so part of God's guidance is to pay attention to your skills and gifts. You know, definitely hone your skills, go to grad school, you, you, you know, pay attention to that but it's only one of the ways God guides people to work. The second way is to pay attention to the needs of the world. That's number two on your um, note-o-matic. You can become aware of what needs to be done around in the world, and you can start to do it. And if you do, God gives you help. For instance, David noticed there was a giant warrior named Goliath, that needed to be gotten out of the way in order to remove the threat to Israel. So he he went out and did it. He wasn't particularly gifted as a soldier, as far as he knew, because he was a shepherd, but he saw that needed to be done, so he went and did it. Or one day, Jesus was speaking to thousands of people. It started getting dark, and his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, all these people are going to be hungry. We better send them away to see if they can make it to town in time to buy some food. And he said, no. You've noticed this need, you feed them. So they scrounged up five loaves and two fishes, and with God's help, they fed all the people that were there. Right? They noticed the need and took care of it. And there's some passages on your um, sheet that talk about this. Uh, one is Titus 3.14. Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Or the next one, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you. Peace and prosperity are two things the city needed. Or this one from Jesus. Now, Jesus is discussing uh, the eternity, you know, the entrance into eternal life. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom God prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. This sounds pretty important, the way Jesus described it. Like, when when you're looking back over your life, the most important question about your work is, how did you serve the needs of other people? So I think this is a really important clue or, or way God guides you or calls you to work. Now, when I say the needs of the world, this could be huge needs like curing malaria or tiny needs like helping a new colleague figure out the computer system or computer network. 
The needs of the world just means anything that makes the world more like the way God wants the world to be. Of course, it would be impossible for you to meet all the needs of the world, so you have to narrow it down somehow. I'd say start with the needs that you are personally responsible for, such as raising your children or paying your bills. Beyond that, pay attention to needs that you are in a good position to meet or that nobody else seems willing to pay attention to. So, for instance, if you lived in the same place for a long time, you know, then maybe, maybe you're the, in a position to run for the school board or some volunteer capacity in your community. On the other hand, if you're pretty mobile, mobile, uh, maybe you're in a position to go to a, a, you know, halfway across the world and document human rights abuses, something that lots of people could do, but few are in a position to do. You might become convinced that teaching troubled youth is more important than another grad degree. Or perhaps it would become clear that something in life other than your job or career is the most important way you help meet the needs of the world. This, of course, is a picture of soccer nights. You know, maybe your real calling is not something you get paid for. So you get a job to, to support yourself and to make it possible to meet the needs of the world in some other way. Einstein recommended that. A PhD student asked him, what's the best job to get in physics? And Einstein's answer was, plumber. Get a job as a plumber, get your work done, and then in your, the rest of your time, you can do all the physics you want without having to worry about who's looking over your shoulder. The point is that God gives you the ability to recognize needs and to take action to help meet them. And God seems to expect you to notice what needs to be done, not just sit around waiting for him to speak to you out of a burning bush. This brings to mind another job I hated. Right after college, I got a job as a salesman for IBM. And I didn't expect this because I didn't study business as an undergrad. And in fact, I was, I was kind of suspicious of business. Because, you know, profit and greed and corporate ladder, it all just sounded kind of dirty or, you know, maybe morally suspicious to me. So it turned out that I loved this job, and that really confused me. And the part I loved, my, my job was to find out what my customers' business problems were and then find a way to solve them using IBM computers and software. And I liked that. I liked the problem solving, and I liked the relational aspect of working with people. So I'll give you an example. My biggest customer was a drug wholesale company. So they supplied drug stores, like everything you might find in a drug store could have been supplied by them. And one of their biggest problems was inventory control. They, they had to make sure they had enough of every drug in each of their regional warehouses so that if a pharmacy called and said, you know, we need this drug, they could get it to them the next day so that if you came and you needed the drug, you could get it filled, right? So if they didn't keep enough inventory, patients might not be able to get their drug, customers might not be able to get their drugs. But if they kept too much inventory, then they found it was expiring on the shelves because drugs have a short, pretty short life. So they were throwing away a lot of expired drugs, and that's driving up costs. But it's important to keep costs low so that their customers, the mom-and-pop independent drugstores, can compete with the big chains. And so my work helped them develop a computer system that made sure they had the right drugs in the right place at the right time with the, less, uh, the least possible waste. 
Uh, and that was, you know, throughout the entire eastern half of the United States. You know, I felt like I was meeting a really a genuine need there. So why did I hate it? I didn't like it because I didn't think that need was important in God's eyes. I had this idea that the needs God cared most about were religious needs. You know, and they should be a pastor or a missionary. And, and then next, you know, health. So doctor or nurse or cancer researcher. And then education, teacher or something like that. And, and you're like, I thought business needs God didn't really care about. And so that caused me to wish I had some other job, like pastor, instead of really paying attention to the value of what I was doing. So I quit IBM. And every year since then, I feel a little bit more regret that I didn't stick it out at IBM to see. I mean, IBM provides good jobs to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And I know IBM software is being used to help solve malaria, to do malaria research, green energy, educational progress in city schools. You know, I could have been part of some of that. Well, I, I guess it's okay that I left IBM and I've had some good jobs since then, but I, I wish I could have been aware of how the job I had then, for as long as I had it, was really contributing to meeting the needs of the world, was a way of fulfilling God's calling or guidance. So if you hate your job, or you're just dissatisfied because you don't think it does anything important in the world, I'd say, look again. Does the product or service you're providing meet someone's true needs? Or could you do it, could you do your job in a way that helps meet people's needs? A salesperson, for example, can either try to get people to buy things they don't need, or a salesperson can help you find something that will meet your real needs. So you know, during the World Series, we, like we were just captivated by Durrell in those um, commercials for Walmart. I mean, he's so enthusiastic. And you, you feel like, gosh, if I went to Walmart, he would help me find what I really need. So I called Kay. Kay, I said, I know what your problem is. Your job is not helping meet the needs of the world. No, she said. My work is actually pretty important. As one of the construction managers at the airport, I'm responsible for traffic flow and for um, terminals. So my job is to keep people safe and to help them have an efficient, uh, pleasant experience at the airport. Uh, I even get a chance maybe to make things a little more beautiful. And in fact, uh, one of my recent projects was the 9-11 memorial. And I actually got to create a, a kind of spiritual space right there at the airport. Uh, and that was great. Uh, Kay's boss. Different 9-11 memorial at a different airport. Not, not here. <laughs> All right, so that wasn't Kay's problem either. Let's move on to the third way that God calls or guides people through, um, to, to work. And that is through the deepest desires of your heart. Through your deepest desires. Take a look at these passages from the Bible. Take delight in the Lord and He will give you your heart's desires. God grants the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Whatever you, whatever you desire, like hunger and thirsting, God will satisfy. That came as a surprise to me. For a long time, I figured if God was going to call me to something, it would be to something I didn't want to do, like you know, go away to a, a far country where I didn't speak the language 
and become a missionary, or, you know, which as an introvert I probably would not like. Because uh, I figured if, God's, if, God has to, if God has to call you to it, it must be something you wouldn't like. Otherwise, why would God have to call you? So this idea that, that God would give you a deep desire for what God is calling you to, that was a real surprise to me. Frederick Beekner says it this way, the place God calls you is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, where the needs of the world and your deep desires come together. So I called Kay. Kay, I've got it. Your work doesn't mesh with the deepest desires of your heart. Well, she said, it's true, my deepest desire is not architecture and construction manager. My deepest desire is my husband and my children. But I do like architecture and construction. That's what I chose to study in graduate school. And I don't have any desire to do another kind of job. So I guess that wasn't Kay's problem. But I had a job that conflicted with the desires of my heart. When I was 16, I started, pumping, uh, started working at the gas station, pumping gas, running credit cards, cleaning the bathrooms. So for me, this was a step up from lawn mowing. At least I wasn't allergic to gas. Um, and I didn't mind the work. I, I, I didn't mind any of it, not even cleaning the bathrooms. But what I hated about this job was the atmosphere. And what I hated the most was the way black people were treated at our gas station. If you were white, you pulled into the full service, we called you sir, you know, would you um, fill her up sir, or ma'am, check your oil ma'am. Uh, and we would, we'd wash your windshield, we'd check your oil, whatever you wanted, we'd smile, we'd be polite, we'd say thank you sir at the end. If you were black, and you pulled up to the full service, we pumped your gas, that's it. No sir, no ma'am, no washing your windshield, no check your oil, uh, and then possibly as you were pulling out of, the, uh, you know, out of the gas station, you know, somebody would mutter something, some racial slur under their breath. Well, I hated that. That conflicted with one of the deepest desires of my heart, that I wanted people, everyone, to be treated with respect. Now, I wouldn't have been able to put it that way. I wouldn't have been able to say this is a deep desire of my heart. I would have just said it makes me feel bad. It makes me unhappy. I hate it the way people are treated here, black people are treated here. And I, I have to admit, it only conflicted with the deepest desires of my heart, right? It did not cause problems with the surface desires of my heart. The surface desires were, I want to get along with everybody else who works here, because I got to go to school with them tomorrow, and I don't want to lose my job. And I was afraid that if I, you know, rocked the boat or said something about the way people were treated, black people were treated at our gas station, you know, I knew the other guys would give me a lot of grief about it, and I was afraid the owner would probably fire me uh, because his sons were like the two most advanced disrespecters in the whole gas station. So the only thing I did about it was I treated black people with respect myself. So if you were black and I happened to be on duty and you came up to the full service and I was the one who pumped your gas, you know, I would call you sir or ma'am. I would wash your windshield, I'd check your oil if you wanted, you know, I'd treat you with respect. So I, I kind of felt like I was doing my share. But I wish now I'd paid a lot more attention to this deeper desire I had that everyone would be treated with respect at the gas station. You know, looking back, I'd say that's definitely a desire God 
planted in my heart. But I kind of buried it underneath, you know, my desire to get along. And I guess I thought there was nothing I could do about it. But looking back, I realize now I could have done something about the situation besides how I treated people myself. I was one of only two of the gas jockeys who didn't steal money from the cash register. All of the others would take a quarter from the cash register and go to the Coke machine and buy a Coke. It was a long time ago. Um, or they'd take a dollar out and go across to the Tasty Freeze and buy a hamburger. But I never, I never took any money from the cash register. And the owner knew what was going on. And he also quickly realized that I was one of the, one of the only two who didn't. Because if I was on duty alone, so nobody else had access to the register, when I took the cash bag to his house at the end of the shift, the amount of money in the bag always matched the tape from the cash register. So he knew I wasn't cheating him. Uh, and actually, I got, I got a raise. Like, I got about a 25 cent an hour raise for that. So I knew he appreciated me. So here's what I could have done. You know, one night when I took the cash register to his house, I could have said, John, if you wonder why the cash in my bag always matches the receipt, the register receipt, it's exactly the same reason that I treat black people with respect at your gas station. I treat you with respect because I treat everyone with respect. And if you ever wanted to have a gas station where the employees, all the employees, treated your money with respect, maybe you'll have to create a gas station where your employees treat everyone with respect. I, th I could have said that. I I'm, I'm sure now I would not have gotten fired. And I actually am pretty sure now things would have changed. He would have thought about that a little bit. And I actually believe, you know, not overnight, but I believe it could have made a difference. I think it didn't really occur to me that God's call to me in that gas station was not just to, you know, do right myself, but, but to care about the whole system around me. God had given me a desire to that that I didn't pay enough attention to. I guess I'm making a distinction between what I did for a job and how I did my work. In God's eyes, the way you do your work is as important as what your work is. In God's eyes, the way you do your work is important as what your work is. What I did was pump gas and clean bathrooms. Uh, and I, I have to say, you know, even now, I'm proud of the way I can wash a windshield. You know, like, I, when I go to the gas station, I always wash... I always wash the windshields on my car, you know, just because I can do it right. It, I mean, if they have paper towels. It takes a paper towel to do it really right. But I was never, like, pumping gas and washing windshields was never going to be the deepest desire of my heart. But I did have this deep desire, put there by God, to treat people with respect. So, I could, so how I did my job could have been as important to my calling as what job I did. So I talked to Kay about this aspect of your deepest desire. I think you're on to something, she said. What I don't like about my job is that, every, that people are treated badly. It's not prejudice. Everyone is treated badly at my job. For example, if anything goes wrong on a project, and on big construction projects, something always goes wrong. Whenever something goes wrong, the managers start blaming people in public. You know, a boss will humiliate you at a meeting, 
or tell someone else you did a poor job or you know, send an email or a memo blaming, blaming you. And it's no fun, and I hate it. So if you want to know what calling means if you hate your job, it could mean two things. God's guidance could either help you find a new job or it could help you do your current job more meaningfully. And I want to focus on the part about doing your current job more meaningfully. I mean, if God is calling you to a, a new or different job, you know, great, go for it. But Kay's challenge to me is, I, I'm not leaving my job. What's God calling me to in my job? And I'd say it's to find a way to do your job more meaningfully. Now, one way that you could do that has already been discussed, which is Discovery Weekend. That was in the announcements. You just heard about that. But let me just remind you, on February 7th and 8th, and this is in your program, right? There's a Discovery Weekend that can help, help you explore more about your job and your calling. So, and, and today is the last day to sign up for that uh, for, for the discounted rate. So you, that's one thing you could do today. I want to talk about three other practical godly ways to fulfill God's calling in your current job for as long as you have your current job. One, take pride in supporting yourself and your family. Take pride in supporting yourself and your family. And I would add, even if it's not paid. So I've been talking about work a lot as if it were a paid job. But we all do a lot of work that isn't paid. And some people, their full-time job is not paid, right? So if, you're, if your work is staying at home, raising kids and preparing food, cleaning and cooking and taking care of the household, you know, that's a job too. And take, take pride in that. And the scripture that goes with this is, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work. Uh, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. So it's right there in the Bible. Part of your job, part of the reason you work is, is so you can eat. Right? It's good, to put it, to put it in positive terms, it's good to work so that you can eat, so you can meet your needs. And in my mind, I'm connecting this to the gifts, skills, and talents and abilities. If God gives you the ability to support yourself or your family by working, do it with pride. And I, now I know some people's abilities, you know, may be less, or you may have a, a, te a permanent or te temporary disability, or, you know, you may not be able to, um, to support yourself completely through your work, but still, what, whatever ability God gives you to work, do it with pride. I think that's very godly. And this, occurred, this happened to me about five or six years ago. I, get, I got laid off from a ministry job that I thought God had called me to. So, so this was very confusing for me. I thought God called me to this job. Uh, I... I loved it, I did it for almost 10 years, and then I got laid off. And, and so I thought, whoa, what's that about? I know, God must have another job like it that God is calling me to. So for five or six months, I was looking for you know, another job this, of the same kind, this kind of faith in, in this field of faith and work. Meanwhile, every month the mortgage has to be paid, right? The money's going out and no money's coming in. And finally, after five or six months, I realized the most important thing God's calling me to is to earn a living. So I decided to start looking for jobs outside of this narrow specialty I thought God had for me. You know, looking for another sales job or a job as a, as a budget director or financial, financial analyst. And eventually I felt completely at peace with that. You know, never before had I felt like it would be okay to get a job primarily to earn a living. Ever since then I felt like, no, I, I'm, I'm proud I can do work that earns a living. All right, the second one is be generous to others, both on the job and elsewhere. 
Be generous to others, both on the job and elsewhere. And the scripture in your program that goes along with this is, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. That's Ephesians 4.28. The first part repeats the value of you know, good, uh, good hard work. But the second part adds, give generously to others in need. Now, of course, one way to do that is you earn money through your good hard work and then you give it to people in need somewhere else. That's great. But I want to talk about giving generously to others in need at your workplace. How can you be generous to the others you work among? So, for example, in Kay's situation, could generosity mean going out of your way to affirm and praise your colleagues? Can you move, can you advance to the next slide? So, so after the first service, my daughter said to me, well, what do the minions have to do with that? Well, okay, so like the one on the, the one on the left, I think he just got blamed for something, and the one on the right is trying to cheer him up, praising him for the work he did. My daughters didn't buy that. But anyway, <laughs> affirmation is definitely a kind of generosity. You know, if you could work among, among your minions in a way that affirms somebody else, I think that would be great. And Kate, Kate told me this. I do try to say thank you to the people, to people when they do something to help me in my job. The admin for printing something, a colleague who transmits some information I need, I sign all emails with thanks, K, especially when requesting something. Uh, and as, um, as the song we're going to sing later says, praise will confuse the enemy. Praise will confuse the enemy. So if, if your job feels like kind of an enemy, praising your coworkers will, will, you know, will confuse the enemy. It's a discipline, K says, that I keep working at. It doesn't always come naturally to me, but I keep trying to work on this discipline. So I wonder if the next step could be even more outrageous. So, you know, I wonder, like, if everybody in her job, next time someone gets blamed in a meeting, if everybody else stood up and said, well, I agreed with that approach, so blame me, too. I'm thinking of that scene from Dead Poets Society. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but um, Robin Williams is this teacher who makes a great bond with his students, but that gets him trouble with, him in trouble with the administration. So they, the headmaster comes to blame him, I think even to fire him, and one of the kids stands up on his desk and says, Captain, my captain. And one by one, all the other students stand up and say, you know, Captain, my captain, I'm with him. And at the end, you feel like the entire atmosphere of, of the room has changed because uh, people stand up for each other. Well, that would at least get the manager's attention. Maybe it would get them all fired. I don't know. Well, maybe blame isn't the problem in your workplace. Maybe there's another way that generosity in your workplace could come forth, like helping a colleague who's struggling with a task. Right? Instead of thinking that other people you have, to, are there, you have to compete with the other people, what if you said, I'm going to work to make everybody else more productive, more capable. I want to be generous to others in, in helping them. Well, what about volunteering for a task that nobody wants to do, like David did with, Goliath, with the Israelite army against Goliath? Or what about listening to someone? Or even praying with them in a crisis? There are lots of ways to be generous, not just with your money, not just off the job, but with the people you work for and among. Number three is work so that other people in your workplace will respect the way you live. Work so that other people in your workplace will respect the way you live. The verse that goes with this one is, Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. 
Then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. So the first part and the last part of this passage are about you know, hard work and supporting yourself, working with your hands. But the middle part is, the, then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live. Now this comes from a letter that was written to a group of Christians. So by non-Christians, what it means is others. You know, people who aren't part of your group. In other words, do what it takes for other people to respect you, to actually respect you, not just what you think is needed. Right? Pay attention to how your work affects others. Now, how can you earn people's respect in a job you hate? First, you can do the most excellent work you're capable of. Right? Doing your, in a workplace, doing the work with excellence is a great way to earn respect because it meets people's needs. Secondly, you can be honest, even when it's not to your advantage. And one way of honesty that I recommend is by uh, telling people in advance if you're going to do something that they're not going to like. So I've had jobs where part of the job is like des deciding strategy or you know, making long-term decisions. And I've found that if I know I'm going to disagree with somebody about a proposal, if I go to that person in advance and say, I just want to tell you that next Tuesday uh, I, I'm going to be opposed to this idea, that is 100%, 1,000% better than ambushing them at, at the meeting and disagreeing with them. I mean, I've, I've been amazed how much being honest about something that's a little painful to you, how that earns respect. And third, you can take care of people around you ahead of taking care of yourself. You know, if you look out for number two, number three, and number four, before looking out for number one, it earns respect. So what do you say to other people on the job? That's good if you, if you say good things. But what you do is a lot more important, according to this verse. Actions speak louder than words. So I want to look at what Jesus said. Now, this one is not in your handout, but I think it's on the screen. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. So if you think of your, if your job, if you think of your job as the enemy, or your, your, you know, your job is uh, something you hate. So I'm not thinking of loving an enemy person or, en or hating an enemy person, but if you think of your job as an enemy, love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. If someone demands your coat, offer them your shirt also. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? So if your job feels like an enemy, if you hate your job, try blessing your job instead of cursing it. You know, try praying for your job and for the people you work with. Uh, if your job slaps you around one day, you know, go back the next day and you know, dare your job to do it again. Now, I, I don't mean accepting abuse at work. Right? I, I, I think we should always resist being abused at work. But if you just feel, you know, yesterday was a bad day, you know, go back today and see if it can be better. If your job demands too much of you, you know, give it the shirt off your back too. And again, I'm not saying spend more time at work. But in other words, do as much for a job that you hate as you would do for a job that you love. Because God's calling to you right here, right now, is in the place where you are, right here and right now. 
That's what I think it means to follow God's calling if you hate your job. Uh, can I pray for us for a moment? Dear God, I thank you for the um, gifts and skills and abilities to, um, to work. And I, I know that work is a gift from you, not a, not a curse. Uh, but I confess that I have not always paid attention to the things you set before me, the, the work that I could do to, to make the world a better place, to meet people's needs. And I do ask you to plant in me a desire to, do the, to recognize and do the work you want me to do, you know, to bring that desire to the surface. And I ask the same for everyone in this, in this room who's willing. You know, show us tomorrow, or today even, this week, uh, what it is that we, can, that we can be about, what your calling is to us in the places where we are, the work we do, whether we love it or whether we hate it. And I pray that you would maybe, you know, by doing this, you would, you would make us hate our jobs a little bit less. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to find out more about how your job is a calling, whether you love it or hate it, visit theologyofwork.org. Join us for the next podcast, which will feature a talk entitled The Problem of Work by Andy Mills the former CEO of Thompson Financial and Professional Publishing.